the MT Takeaway Podcast with Maples Teasdale. Hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the MT Takeaway with Maples Teasdale. My name is Adam Bernstein and I lead the Maples Teasdale Hospitality and Leisure Sector. Today I'm going to be talking to Simon Carson, Head of the Leisure, Food and Beverage Team for Newmark's UK and EMEA Retail Practice. Simon has acted for some of the industry's biggest names including By Chloe, Los Mochas, Popeye's Louisiana Chicken, Paramount Lebanese Kitchen, Salvage, Shake Shack, Speciality Hospitality Group, Ted's Grooming Room, United Fitness, Blank Street Coffee and Vapiano. Good morning Simon and welcome. Hi Adam. Thought we'd kick off by just getting a bit of background about you, how you got into the hospitality and leisure business all those years ago. So I always felt I had a direction to go into property, real estate. I studied at a university and came out of university in 2010 and got a job at a company called Stephen Kane & Company, which was a niche retail practice, focusing mainly on occupier-led work. So they work with brands, help them grow. And as I joined, it was a time in which the food market, the leisure market started booming and retail coming out of the recession was on the down. And they decided they wanted to create a leisure team, which I, for some reason, opted in. Everyone always says, you know, leisure, stay away from it. And for some reason, again, my stomach kind of leads me back. So I worked there for a couple of years and then I joined another company called Devono, again, focusing retail and leisure. And after a few years from there, I set up my own practice called Simon Carson and Company. And after three years, I got approached by a company called HDH, which is now Newmark. And HDH have 30 years in the industry, specializing from premium luxury brands to casual dining brands. And again, represent them on UK and European mandates. That's kind of what attracted me to work for HDH. It was a great opportunity, the right time, right place. They were just about to be sold to Newmark. And for me, it was a chance to work with some amazing people as well. And that's a testament because people have been there for nearly their whole careers, 10 plus years, and they're still going strong. Just going back to when you set up on your own, what was it that made you go back into the big corporate organisation? Was it the opportunity that was offered or the exposure to different clients? A bit of both, really. Newmark or HDH at the time are best in class and really it's testament to the clients that they've worked with and the longevity they've worked with. They're still working with clients today that they work with from the inception and you don't see that in everyday companies. So for me that was a great opportunity to learn working with some of the best people but also the ability to build on my network and build on my client base. Looking more at the actual companies that you act for in the hospitality and leisure sector, if someone came to you and and said, Simon, we, we want to break the UK market here, which I know that you've got vast experience in in companies coming over from maybe the US. What's the advice that you give them or the step-by-step guide in how to break the UK market? There's a lot of people who want to open up a concept, set up a restaurant. You know, everyone has that dream of running their own business. For me, you need passion, direction, intention, and the right team. They're the key sort of components. We see people every day having this dream, but it's a 24-7 job. And if you just have the idea, but not really willing to put in the time and effort, you're destined to failure. You see so many people who wake up and we get calls pretty much daily saying, I, I want to open up a shop, I want to open up a restaurant. But they haven't really thought about anything more than just the dream, the pipe dream. So without those key components, you really need to start putting together the plan and actually working with the right aspects to it too. And then when you are looking for sites for them, are they always looking to break the London market first or do some look in the other major cities in the UK? 
honestly varies. The, the clients we work with, we work from clients from embryonic stages who, as I said, just have the pipe dream, the idea, and they're, they're really at the early days, and we help them on the strategy, the real estate strategy, looking at their business plan, help them evolve that part and take them to the next step. Sometimes we even help them raise investment and put them in touch with the right connections. Alternatively, we work with brands that are coming, as you said, from US. We've got a team of eight who focus on everything in Europe. So we've got European mandates for premium luxury brands that we represent as well. And it's about advising on all aspects. So these companies could say, Blank Street, for example, they were rapidly growing in the US. They decided UK was a natural place to grow next. The language barrier was there, the, the app, the process, the website. So for them, London, easy place to start and then grow it from there. Manchester is a big key. It's the key cities. So be it Europe, UK, internationally, everyone wants to be in the key cities. They tend to not grow in the market towns or the secondary locations first. They tend to try and be in key aspects of those cities and then location, location, location. That's the key part. You know that saying five minutes from success or 50 yards from success. And what sort of properties do these companies look for? What, what makes a property a, a good property or a good option? Is it, is it footfall areas? Is it like proximity, let's say, in London to a tube station? Or is it being in a major shopping centre? So we've seen a big drive on the quick service restaurant market in the last three years. A couple of years before COVID really started kicking off and really accelerated during COVID. The quick service restaurant guys are looking for location, prime, prime, prime be it shopping centres, be it high streets, be it drive throughs they have to be in the best locations. If you take something secondary, you really struggle to get that footfall in and you really struggle to attract people. Now, you have businesses like Five Guys who actually built the model on we want to start Prime originally and then we're going to start taking slightly more secondary location because we've built the brand. But even McDonald's nowadays need to be in the Prime locations. It's funny how you would think when these brands are coming over, especially brands that are from US-based with great reputations, a couple of thousand locations across the US, even more internationally. But when they come into UK, people still don't really know them. It's still an education process. It's still a part for them to build the brand reputation. And it's very easy to lose that very quickly if you don't follow those key components. And I know we've spoken in the past about some of your clients, mainly the US clients, desperate for drive-through sites because obviously that is quite a big American thing which is obviously in the UK but that there isn't the space surely in London around there or is it in such high demand that rents are going through the roof? Rents have already gone through the roof. The challenge about drive-throughs is actually the cost of converting them into a drive-through. So landlords nowadays big focus on, on everyone's plate whether it's landlord or tenant is sustainability. ESG, ensuring that they're following the right guidelines to actually become a more sustainable and a greener company. And the cost of converting a historic building or knocking down and rebuilding into a drive-through is not really within the green strategy of these companies. And the big institutional firms have a direction or mandate that they're trying to hit now, which you see it with EPCs and the change of EPCs that have come in and, and further effects of how to ensure ratings are going to be better in the next five, seven years, up to 2030, and guaranteeing a EPC of B, means that their focus and the emissions that are being released on, on carbon emissions has to be in a way that has a positive impact on the environment. And drive-throughs is hugely profitable for the tenant and hugely profitable for the landlord because they can charge the rents that they want to. But the impact comparing environment to rental figures makes it a big balance. Okay, and going back to the quick service restaurants, is that a trend that you are seeing? Is it either top, top restaurants 
or quick service and the ones in the middle are the ones that are, are suffering at the moment is that is that how you see the market going in the future is there still space for everything from quick service right through to your sort of family chain restaurants all the way to the top to maybe michelin starred restaurants which obviously would survive in their own right but i'm thinking more maybe let, let's look at i know there's one around the corner from where we're recording but there's a really high-end looking gaucho which charges high-end prices but is there room in the in the market for everyone still or are we going to see changes the biggest hit has been the casual dining sector because the prices have gone up the margins have squeezed and they were the ones historically that always had the positive margins to grow quite quickly now that stagnated a lot during covid there's been a bit of change in structures a lot of them went through company voluntary agreements cvas so they're the ones that have found the biggest squeeze i'd say as a corporate company as a company Individual mum and pup restaurants are always going to be there. They're always going to thrive in their own entirety because you can live off one restaurant. But if you're trying to grow a business, they're the ones I think have been squeezed the most. That also creates room for new brands, new casual dining brands to come out and look at Pizza Pilgrims as a prime example. Honest Burger is another example where they're affordable, they're accessible, they're attractive. And you compare that with some of the other brands who in the last probably 10 years have been less loved I don't think I need to say them. I think they're obvious brands, what they are. They're the ones that are really struggling to keep up with the day-to-day change. And change is key as well. You mentioned casual dining groups are struggling. Maybe you can give us a bit of background as to why they might be struggling and which ones might actually be growing. I think the brands that are growing are the Asian brands. Wagamama has been a huge success for the restaurant group, TRG, whereas their other brands have not adapted in the same way or are not changed as rapidly with the times as something like Wagamama, which just seems to be growing stronger and stronger. And then that has had a knock-on effect to other brands. So Banana Tree got bought out last year by Big Table Group, the guys who own Bella Italia, Cafe Rouge, Amalfi. And Amalfi is growing now, which is their alternative Italian brand. I say alternative, it's a newer version of Bella Italia. That's what I mean by alternative. Banana Tree now seems to be a big drive for growth. And I think the success of Wagamama and the strength that it's benefited towards the restaurant group has been replicated with something like this. So they are now trying to build it and grow it as, I wouldn't say as rapidly, uh, or as big as Wagamama, but you can see the change in which that's happened. And brands like Bella Italia, who are clearly finding it difficult to compete in this market, is that because the target market might have been eaten up by a Pizza Express, one of the quick service restaurants, or is it just purely because they've got a, a lack of product? I think the consumer has a more sophisticated palate nowadays. It's changed since the 90s where everyone became a coffee connoisseur to people nowadays wanting better quality for better drive for your money. There's always going to be a market for a Bella Italia brand or the, and a Frankie's and Benny's, and I think they will still continue to grow and still continue to do okay. But the expansion, the growth in which they're going to continue is going to be slowed down by the fact that you have competing brands or smaller brands where people see a better value for the money they're paying. And, and that's evident with something like Franco Manca, which, again, as another brand over the last 10 years or five years, however long they've been going, has shown that you don't need to charge crazy prices for great quality. And that's been a big testament to that growth as well. And then you look at something like Gales as another example, where if there's Gales on everyone's high street, everyone seems to be attracted to want to go there. And they're now moving into the drive through market. So there's a big growth for them as well. On the flip side, you have people like Greg's, who seems to be everyone's favourite local baker. And they've been hugely successful on the high street in the last couple of years. They've seen great opportunity to finally spread their wings and take 
prime, prime locations in the high street as well as drive-throughs. And that's also been a testament to different levels in the market from the premium brands like Gales to the more accessible brands like Greg's, but seem to be equally growing at a similar pace. You mentioned that the Asian restaurants are the ones that are growing fast. What's going to be after the Asian craze? Asian, you can split into regions as well. And region, especially in the prime city centres, so the big cities in the UK, have a big demand for regional cuisine. And that could be Indian, so we've got a client who's got Calcutta cuisine, Bengali cuisine, to Thai restaurants where they focus on Northern Thai or Southern Thai, like the JKS Group guys or Kiln. It seems to be the regional side where people want to specialise in. And I think there's going to be more growth on that. But whether they're as scalable as, as a more generic Asian restaurant, and I say generic Asian as in Southeast Asian or generic Indian, begs to differ. Okay, and then, then moving on away from the, the restaurant sector to another sort of leisure trend that I think is coming to the UK and certainly I know is a passion of yours, paddle tennis. Perhaps you could give us a bit of background about how paddle is growing in the UK, what paddle operators are looking for, and how you see it going in, in the next sort of year to two. I heard a statistic the other day, and you may be able to tell me if I'm right or wrong, that paddle tennis is one of the fastest growing sports worldwide. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And uh, you and I seem to be playing it quite often at the moment. Yes. I tend to be beating you most times, but we're playing quite often, which is always positive. The demand for paddle tennis at the moment has gone through the roof. We've got clients who have bars, restaurants, hotels who have then come up and said, you know, we want to open up a paddle concept. The biggest challenge in the UK or London or big cities is space, real estate. You need a minimum of eight metre ceiling height to have a paddle tennis court. However, the cost of converting or the cost of installing a paddle tennis court is far cheaper than most of its competition of other racket sports. So there's a balance there where everyone is trying to jump on the bandwagon, everyone's trying to open up a paddle tennis club as quickly as they can, but the race is against space rather than competition. You see Stratford has eight courts. I heard a fact, and again, I'm not 100% of this is where it lies, but there's something like 10,000 members for eight courts in Stratford. Canary Wharf are building eight courts, seven of them are inside, one of them is external. We've just signed up to a company called Paddle United that they've just taken a 10-year lease or nine-year lease in Bushy. It's a land grab and you're competing again against the residential market, which obviously has had a slowdown and you're competing against logistics, which is still going quite strong. Where do you think Paddle kind of sits? Does it sit in between competitive socialising and, let's say, tennis and proper sports clubs? Or is it closer to the sports clubs? Because my, my opinion is that it probably sits somewhere in between because you, you can turn up in probably jeans and play it because you're not required to move that much. Do you think it could end up in central London, in places like where maybe Sixes Cricket have taken, as long as the site permits that? Could you see that happening? Well, in the US, they've got a concept called chicken and pickle for pickleball, which, again, I think the format can be replicated for paddle tennis because paddle tennis is, I think, more European-focused. Pickle is the fastest-growing sport in the US. It has multi-sports, multi-engagements with a big focus on um, the social side of it. So you can go there and just hang out, have a couple of drinks, a bit of food, or you can go and play pickleball. And I think paddle is going to be a similar format. It's a very sociable game, and it seems that people want to do it on a more common aspect, more weekly aspect. So two, three times a week rather than just once a week if they can do it. It seems to be very addictive at the moment. The challenge I think you will have eventually is you, you see countries like Sweden where they're undersubscribed but too many paddle tennis courts and now they're just becoming empty. And weather is very dependent on that as well. 
Okay, so just to finish off the podcast, Simon, with the last question, I wonder if you can tell us what your focus is for the hospitality, leisure, and perhaps even hotels industry for 2023 and into 24. We've seen a big growth from the B-leisure market, so the apart hotel market, and there are various companies trying to create a bigger presence in the UK. They have a big brand awareness in Europe and the US, and again, it's, it's a land grab scenario where they're competing against each other for space and, and they need specific uh, hotel use. But this B leisure format is where people aged 18 to 35 are traveling a couple of times a week. They will go to a specific city, they'll do a couple of nights work there and then they'll stay for the weekend. And again, the over 65 market as well is also doing that, a single person going out, dining out themselves. So we're seeing a big drive on that and I think that will continue to grow. On top of that, I think in the next couple of years, there's still continued focus about becoming more green, more sustainable, and a big focus on ESG as companies strive towards B Corps and making the environment a better place. And that has a knock-on effect on the hospitality market, on the leisure market, on the restaurant market. But everyone, I think, is moving in that direction, and everyone seems to be either slowly or very quickly getting on board with that, which is it makes it very exciting, I think, for the market. In London especially, I think the restaurant market as well is, is thriving and prime locations are getting stronger and stronger. We haven't seen rent go down at all. If anything, they're going up. And it's because demand is there for London. And from Europe and US, it's seen as an attractive place still to come into the UK. Thank you very much, Simon, for sharing your thoughts and experiences with us today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me on. You can find out more about the hospitality and leisure team at Maples Teasdale by visiting our website at maplesteasdale.co.uk and following the links to our sector experience. You have been listening to the MT Takeaway with Maples Teasdale. I hope you can join us again next time when we'll have another guest from the hospitality and leisure sector. The MT Takeaway Podcast with Maples Teasdale.